Marijuana smoking, experts point out, can make a helpless addict of its victim within weeks, causing physical and moral ruin and death. The first legally sold marijuana here goes to an Iraqi war veteran. A new insurance study out this week looked at car crashes in several states that allow the use of recreational marijuana. Barry Peterson. You're a doc. You've studied this. You've talked to the researchers. Right. You're saying marijuana can kill cancer cells. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. Marijuana is illegal under federal law. States have legalized recreation. It's no wonder you can't open your eyes. What do you expect doping yourself up with this wrong stuff? What do you know about pot? Good morning. You are listening to the Cannabis Hour, a bi-weekly public affairs program where I discuss all things cannabis. I'm your host, Jen Procacci, and thank you so much for tuning in and joining us today. We're going to be listening to a harvest and curing talk from Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery on today's show. This talk actually took place six years ago on August 29th, 2015 at Area 101 in Laytonville. It was part of Healing Harvest Farms' one-year anniversary celebration of their Cannabis Farmers Market. So a little bit of a throwback here today. Kevin has a lot of incredible knowledge to share about the harvest and curing process. This is not a live show today, so I won't be taking callers at the end like I usually do, just to let you know. Before we get started with that Kevin Jodry talk, I have a statement to share with you from a member of our cannabis community up in Humboldt County. Her name is Lindsay Jones, and she is the owner and cultivator of Aloha Humboldt, a cannabis farm located in the Willow Creek community. That community is currently being impacted by the Knob Fire, which is, I believe, almost 2,000 acres in size today and at 0% containment. The community there is currently battling the knob fire with very little assistance from the Forest Service or CAL FIRE due to the number and intensity of the fires burning across the state at this time. I spoke with Lindsay yesterday, and she had the following to share with us all about her experience. We all need to have a better understanding of how local farmers that depend on their land and crops for their livelihoods can work together with local government and law enforcement. We all know Cal Fire resources are stretched painfully thin with so many wildfires burning across the state. They need so much more support. That being said, when property owners with certified agricultural passes are not allowed entrance to their farms, when the evacuation status is a warning and not an order, the system is flawed. The officer I spoke to would not even look at the ag pass I carried and completely dismissed me when I tried to go in on Sunday. Property owners and farmers alike should be acknowledged and supported as much as humanly possible especially when time is of the essence and we're trying to defend our farms. We need to have our ag passes acknowledged and have support to protect our land in a timely manner during evacuation warnings. Everyone that reached out to me today wanting to help, please join your local fire safe council and support your volunteer fire departments. 
think about how your daily actions contribute to helping reverse climate change or continue to make it worse. I implore everyone to check out Project Drawdown. The world's top scientists have released comprehensive ways for us to effectively reverse climate change. It makes no sense for us as a human race to ignore it or put it on the back burner anymore. There are data-driven solutions to climate change. The outpouring of support for our community is humbling and so appreciated. Thank you to everyone that reached out. Connect with your communities. We all need each other more than ever in these wildly tumultuous times. So again, that is a statement from Lindsay Jones, the owner and cultivator of Aloha Humboldt up in the Willow Creek area where they are currently battling the knob fire. Well, Lindsay, I know that we all wish you the best and hope your community has the best possible outcome from this situation. So moving on, I'm going to be playing that Kevin Jodry talk for you now. I hope you enjoy it and you learn something. Kevin is wonderfully well-spoken and he's also pretty funny. A quick note that unfortunately in the recording of this talk, you cannot hear the listeners asking their questions towards the end when he does Q&A, but it's pretty easy to ascertain from Kevin's answers what the questions were. So, all right, here we go. Hope you enjoy. Thank you, Tim Blake, for allowing me to be at your event. <laughs> it's a privilege. Um, this is a, a class we want to talk about uh, harvesting and curing. And, you know, you, what, what we're finding, just as we, so I don't forget it, what we're starting to see is we're starting to see a quality control evaluation of what we do as a trade. And so for all of us, we've always evaluated the quality off of the velocity of the movement of the product, how fast the product left typically quantified the quality of the product. And then we had the advent of lab technology probably eight years ago. And lab technology started to allow us to look into the cannabis plant on a, on a different level. It allowed us to see contamination that growers applied both on purpose and, and contamination that was applied without their knowledge, meaning fungal pathogens typically. And this, this type of information started allowing people to see this product a little bit differently. What you have now is another layer of, of exposure in that in Oregon, they did a test recently on cannabis that they were able to buy from dispensaries. So they did a broad spectrum on cannabis, hash, super concentrate, edibles. And they tested all these products, but they tested them as if they were USDA testing. So they didn't use a specific five toxin screen and then five pathogen screen. So typically when you're testing cannabis, you're looking for some known markers on certain fungicides, certain pesticides, certain growth regulators, uh, hardeners, which is a growth regulator. And you're looking for a specific pathogenetic uh, infestations. And so we look at those seven to ten things and we say if these things are not present, then cannabis is clean. And what we know, though, is that at the next level of testing, as, we, as the USDA, what they found was that almost none of the cannabis was clean in terms of toxins because toxins that affect cannabis that have been prior used in any of these scenes, they remain up to maybe five to seven years. And so what they started to discover through the testing process was that any scene that had contaminated material in the scene left traces of that contamination, which would then subsequently re-release from its grip on whatever surface it was contained in, 
and then reapply itself to the cannabis. And so what they saw was cannabis that had been dried in a space, that had used cannabis that had been dried, that had been sprayed with Eagle 20 four and a half years earlier. And so contamination that was picked up years later from the deposition. They found incredible quantities of flea powder and, and pest stuff from animals that emanate from the dogs. This stuff leaves a deposition. If we were to test products in this thing, we would start to find this deposition. They started to find uh, contaminants from all forms of pest strips, anything that involved chemical contamination. But what you found was that the duration that it remained was unbelievably long. And so what, what the point of this is, is that we're going to get into, you know, how do we harvest cannabis and, and what's the optimal time and how do we cure it, which really isn't, we don't cure cannabis. Um, it's the thing that I want to make sure people understand is that the place that you actually do the work in, wherever this cannabis product is actually dried, wherever this cannabis product is processed, that whole process needs to be changed. Or otherwise, what we have is we have places that we use that are absolutely contaminated from decades of contamination. And for all of us that have been in the industry long enough, all of us were chemical at one point. I mean, you must have touched, not everybody had to, but you're in the industry 33, 40 years, you touch some chemicals. And the problem is, how long does it remain? And so that's an issue that has to be brought up is that when we're talking about the product, because drying and curing is to get a product for sale, a product for use, how do you know it's actually safe to consume for you or for the public? And as we go into these next levels of product uh, certification in terms of what is a product, be very aware that the way we behaved prior with holding these, these things, where it was trimmed, where it was processed, where you actually dried it, did you dry it in a building that had any kind of contamination prior? Because what you have is a contaminated drying space. And so that was a, a very interesting article. And, and we're not at that level with USDA testing because we're not under organics. But the lab said they were curious. They said, what is medical cannabis? And when they went and found medical cannabis, they could not find anything medical about it. And it wasn't because it was contaminated with the things that we would typically believe. It wasn't just the fungicides and it wasn't just the, the, the pest, pest control or the hardeners or growth regulators. It was things that had been applied to crops you know, five years earlier. And so the point of that is you know, um, it's the control of your trimming space and control of your drying space. So that's just something I wanted to throw out real fast before we get into it. Harvesting cannabis, you know, we, we say that we, we, we look at the trikes and we, we look for a, a specific amount of golden tones. We look for a specific amount of black, which means that we've reached a peak, a peak of fruition. In all honesty, you probably harvest optimum cannabis maybe once every 10 harvests. Because really, for most of us that are doing DEP, you're doing it for outdoor, you're really working with our environmental problems. And it's rare that you really get a season that allows you to have such a level of incredible control. Indoor, you can do things that are unbelievably precise. But outdoor, bless you, but outdoor, you're farming. And so you have this, 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 this reality that you're rarely going to get into optimal, perfectly cured cannabis unless the weather's right. So we had rain yesterday, which is great. Let that happen in another couple of weeks, and let's see how much optimally picked cannabis comes down. And so it makes it to a point of really what you're trying to really look at is a compromise. What is the compromise of harvest? And, the compr and, and that starts to become also your selection. And you start to realize as a, as a cultivator that you have to try to find varietals that work for you on your location 
that have the ability to finish in a, in a relatively reasonable amount of time with enough guarantee that the plant will be able to handle the climactic conditions, and then you're able to get that plant up to a higher level. I think for so many people, they get caught up in the marketing of the product that what they do is they take products that they shouldn't grow on their property and they utilize them and they never have the ability to get that product to, to true fruition. And so when you're talking about harvesting a varietal, it would be better to have cannabis that harvested correctly for your situation than to try to work with cannabis that doesn't have a window of finishing time for your application. Because ultimately, the more we ripen this correctly, the better the product we have. And I would prefer to see a highly ripened commercial product correct than a connoisseur product that's unripened and not correct. And there's a difference. One of them is just a better product. And as they start to ascertain value, it'll have, it'll have a hold. Um, we talked about curing. And, and that's a phrase we've used forever. And I, I did a research project on this years ago, and I found out that we don't cure anything. That, that curing is really, a, it's, a, it's, it's an actually a, a, a process. And it means that we hold something at a specific temperature, and we bring the humidity down incrementally over a two-month period in a controlled box. So typically when we're talking curing, we're talking like curing meats. But with cannabis, in the decarboxylation process, where we're trying to get the water molecule to flash off, we're, we're implying that we're curing it, but in reality, what we're doing is we're stabilizing it. We're stabilizing this product that what we're trying to do with it is to drive the moisture out of it without drying it out completely. And the, 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 the issue with this is that it's the same situation. When you have an outdoor harvest, at certain times of the year, you have the ability to do this very correctly. At other times, you don't. Your debt products are a little different. Your debt products are you're drying them in, a, in an environment that's probably, you know, 102 degrees during the day. It's going to go down probably 58 at night. So you're going to have incredible temperature swings up and down. You go into the latter part of the season, and you're looking at, you know, 62 probably outside temp with, you know, 70 80% humidity. And so all these situations that influence this drying process, it, it – it makes it difficult to say this is the process that we utilize to do it because each one of these variables adds a component. What we're trying to find out though is how do we take a piece of cannabis and how do we dry it correctly so that we don't flash off all the monoterpenes and all the monoterpenes are all the delicate terps. That's all your limonenes, your mandarines, your citrines. It's all the stuff that has exclusive desirability. The terpenes that make people want to really touch your cannabis, it gives them the uplifting effect. Anything over 82 in the dry form, we start to flash that off. As we flash those monoterpenes in, we get into a sequesterpene, and that's carophyllene. Carophyllene is bitter, and it's in every, almost every bit of cannabis. Carophyllene is the, is, the, is the terpene that they use to train drug dogs to find cannabis. So it's pretty much maybe we find a variety without carophyllene, we have a pretty good variety. But the, the point is that carophyllene is bitter. It's a big component in African strains. It gives it that woody, bitter flavor. But for a lot of the strains that we work with, that isn't a desirable trait. And so what we're trying to find is, is how, do we, how do we dry this cannabis? How do we keep these temperatures under 82? And how do we take a piece of cannabis and absolutely drive all the moisture out of it while retaining all the essential oils? And so much of this process is, is trying to balance out the, the release of the moisture from the plant and then the subsequent regathering of moisture when, when it cools. Cannabis is a sponge. 
So as much as we dry it, we can dry cannabis till it's literally at, you know, 7% moisture. And I can put it outside overnight in a moist area and it'll be back up to 45%. So we know cannabis is a sponge. And that's an important thing to remember because when you're working on summer depth, you're going to dry the cannabis too quickly and you're not going to have enough moisture that retains to create a body that allows it to move through time. The problem with beautifully dried cannabis is that it's perfect for consumption today, but by the time it gets to the end user, it's powder. And so what we're trying to do is we're almost trying to like, it's not like blanching, but blanching is where we take a, a vegetable and we put it in hot water and we seal it. If on a plant, it'd be like called superization. Superized is, is, a, is, a, is a plant scab. But what we're trying to do is, is create a situation where this epidural layer of the plant isn't so highly superized from this initial dry process that it allows the moisture to leave, but it retains this oily component. And these, these temperatures are basically keep your grow under 82. Keep the dry process under 82 degrees, and you will, you will limit the amount of these monoterpene flash off. If you take a look at any kind of uh, process, CO2, BHO, they're all extremely bitter unless they're under an extremely expensive vacuum system. If the vacuum system that does the extraction is inadequate, you can't get the temperature low enough without burning off all the monoterps, and what you're left with is all these sequest terps, which are bitter. And they're, they're important because they have effects, but it changes the quality of the product and the perception. And so we're taking this, this, this varietal, whatever it is we're doing, and we're hanging it in some form, or we're, or we're wet trimming it and putting it onto a rack, which I don't prefer. I, I would rather see the cannabis, in terms of quality of ultimate product, I would prefer to see the cannabis cut and then hung. And I, and I would prefer to see the leaves left on it. I would prefer to see when you harvested the cannabis, you didn't stack it up in a pile because we, we start to bruise and damage this product. We start to change the shape of the product. The stuff that we used to look at where cannabis was cannabis, it, it's changed to where it's examined so visually that anything that damages the morphology, the shape, the visual appearance is a problem. So on harvest, gently harvest this plant. Try not to stack it up in piles. I mean, we used to fill trucks with it. You have to be much more gentle. When you leave the leaves on this plant, you just slow down the transpiration and the drying process. But what you really do is you stop a lot of the external damage to your trikes. Um, I'm not even going to talk about machine work because that's a whole that's 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 straight commercial. And if you've ever seen machine process cannabis under a scope, it's it's brutalized. The difference in machine trim and and hand trim is so dramatically different. There's no hand trimmer that would ever be replaced by a machine at this point. They're, they're just a different product, and it's for a different quality market. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to talk about hand work so it makes it pretty easy because otherwise we're just, what's the point of leaving the leaves on? What's the point of being so gentle? If we're going to run a piece of cannabis through a processing piece of equipment, what we're going to do is we're going to cover this entire bud with so much of the plant sugars that it's going to oxidize and turn it brown in, a, in an extremely short period of time. And so matter, no matter what level of cannabis you produce, no matter what type of drying operation you have, no matter what type, you could even have a curing chamber and you still couldn't take machine trim cannabis and turn it into high grade. It's impossible. Once you, once you do the damage, once you peel the trikes off the surface, all your terpenes, terpenes are essential oils. Terpenes are the smell component in cannabis. Terpenes are what really drive the, the sale of cannabis. Terpenes are probably more important than cannabinoids. And in chemotype, meaning terpenoids and cannabinoids, is how people really want to start classifying cannabis today.
Cannabis right now, we call it sativa indica, but really the taxonomy is wrong. And so what they're trying to do is change cannabis into sativa is hemp, all cannabis is indica, afghanica is more the afghani broadleaf, big leaf, and then you have ruderalis, which is its own hybrid. Within these forms, what we know is that it's the terpenoidal profiles that really indicate more than anything to do with its morphological. Morphological means shape and style. So when someone says sativa, you think tall and willowy. And when you say indica, you think short and stout. And you think indica, you think of specific effect. And sativa, you think of specific effect. But really, it's, it's, it's off the chemotype. It's off the combination of terps and, and cannabinoids. It's within those trichome heads that all the cannabinoids and all the terpenes are contained. There's 20,000 terpenes in nature. There's over 200 in cannabis. So all the components that make cannabis such an incredible thing, these terpenes drive all your responses. They drive your attraction to it. The cigarette companies did extensive research on addictive behavior mechanisms. They found that uh, limonene, citrine, uh, lemon limes, and pink grapefruit absolutely drive addictive behavior responses. It forces you to want more of it. If you have cannabis that has those type of terps, that's part of the attraction to that cannabis is that it triggers that response. When we wipe the trikes off the outside of the plant, we've effectively wiped off the smell component. The smell does not reside in the leaf. The smell resides in the trike. So when we've taken this component out, we've reduced the quality of this product dramatically. And so this post-production handling, this we chop the plant, how we handle it from that point forward is really more damage than I've seen than ever in the growing process. I see people take killer, killer cannabis and just absolutely turn gold into straw. And it's because we're harvesting this cannabis and we're harvesting it roughly, so we're bruising it like fruit. If we would have, if we would have picked fruit, we wouldn't want to bruise it in the lug. We don't want to bruise the cannabis. It changes the color of the bud compared to the other components. You start to see changes in the flower itself, leaving the leaves on when we hang it so it just protects it for handling. Putting it into a situation where it's clean, that, that's the trick right now. And so the, the way we can work it out is we can go get Tyvek and we can wrap these rooms top to bottom in Tyvek. And Tyvek's pretty clean and it'll seal the space and it's a lot easier to work in. The problem with um, any of the plastics is they create a condensate. And so when you have plastic in a space, any moisture within it collects and gathers and then percolates down. So it kind of makes an issue. You don't see that with the Tyvek. The Tyvek will seal up a, a garage pretty good. It's pretty good for sealing up basic grow spaces. And it'll just give you some kind of barrier between the dirty stuff that you've had and where we are now. In that space, if we can get, like I said, if we can get the temperatures to around, you know, 78 to 82, we're optimal. The, the question is trying to learn how to pull this much moisture out with dehumidification. And this is where it starts to really become a factor of your infrastructure. Because for a lot of people, if you don't have enough power, you're forced to use propane heat. The problem with propane heat is it produces water as a byproduct. So we go into wood stoves, but wood stoves produce a scent. And so you're trying to start to work on this balance of can we drive a temperature high enough to get enough of this water vapor to flash off and then allow it to then subsequently rehydrate on the nighttime application. So cannabis is actually pulsing through, a it's pulsing. You don't have the ability typically to control it completely. I built a room just so I could play around with this concept. I have a completely climatically controlled space that lets me do anything I want temperature-wise and humidity. And so I was able to play around in it, and I was able to take it to where I could get it down to maybe, you know, 22% humidity at 78 degrees. 
And what I had was some of the most unbelievably stabilized, balanced cannabis I'd ever dried. Because what I was able to do was I was able to bring it down sequentially, but because the temperature was never high, I never lost the oils. And then right before I put this cannabis into, into its storage, I let the humidity go back up to about 40%. And what it did is it remoistened it enough to give it a resiliency so that it didn't get destroyed in its long-term movement. And what we do is if you take a look, there's these, these companies called uh, like Boniva. They make these nice little humidity packs. They're about 65%. You can throw them in a jar of cannabis, and it keeps it moist, and it'll keep, it'll keep the, 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 the oils active. It's just that it doesn't smoke optimally at that temperature, at that humidity level. You'd have to take the cannabis out of your Bonita container, roll it, let it sit maybe 15, 20 minutes. Cannabis that's optimal for storage is not optimal for smoking. Optimal for smoking is drier than storage. And so when I roll a joint, we used to take it and I used to throw it on top of one of the grow lights and let it sit for 10 minutes. And it flashes off the rest of the moisture within the joint so the combustion is complete because I don't want any water to slow down the combustion and the smoking process. So if you can pull a butt out of the pound and you can grind it up and smoke it and you think it's awesome, don't bag that pound. You need to add some more moisture to it because you're going to lose a little over time and no pound is ever treated so delicately except by you. So you hold it like it's a pillow, but it, it becomes another product when it leaves. Yeah. If this was a... This was an experiment. This was what I was saying is I built a room so that I could actually cure pot. I built a space that let me have enough control so I could kind of understand what was taking place. And it let me play around with some of these pieces. And, and bringing it down into the 40s is fine. It's just that when I got it down into these lower numbers, what I got was this incredible, it, it, it almost changed the outside surface of the cannabis to where I had a crunch to it. And then as soon as I allowed the moisture to come back in, that crunchy exterior remained, but there was an interior moisture. I didn't superize the outside of the plant by drying it too fast. If I dry cannabis too quickly, we seal the outside, and we get a, an, an appearance of dried cannabis, but the interior is always moist. And even if we try to dry it correctly, we never get that moisture out of the middle the same way. Once you've sealed it, once you've blanched it, once you take a roast and you sear the outside, you've locked moisture in, period, and you can't get it back out. And so really it's a question of trying to use the tools that you have. And so what I'm saying is we have all kinds of equipment. We can do some neat stuff. But if we don't, what we're trying to do is drive temperatures up, and we're probably going to even get a little bit above the 80s because it's hard to do this in, in the real world without it. But what you're trying to do is, is pay attention to your temperatures and try to keep them in that low 80s if at all possible. The higher we creep over 82, the more we start to flash off specific terpenes that really, really are delicate, but it's what makes this product so unbelievably attractive. These limonenes, it's, it's, and it's part of the addiction process, and I'm not trying to advocate addiction, but it's, it's the fact that those terps have an addictive nature, but they also drive euphoria, they drive mood, they drive balance, they, they absolutely create the balance in cannabis, and it's in this process that makes it so crucial. So... The, the, the question is, I mean, I was on a panel with Ed Rosenthal about this, and we had a, you know, a, a radically different view on drying cannabis because he's drying it in a closet at his house, and we're drying it by the barn. And so it, it's really relative to, you know, what is your application, and what are you trying to do, and what resources do you have? If you have at all the ability to have electricity at any of these outdoor grows, it's worth it to even rent to Jenny and bring in electric strip heaters, don't use the little small ones. They're just too efficient. You can put electric strip heaters into your dry space, and you can power that up with the generator. 
and you would be able to have the ability now to control the temperature without driving up the humidity. And you'd be able to, with gauges and with light air movement, we don't need huge air movement. We're not trying to create a windstorm inside the space. We just need enough circulation so that we're, we're moving this, this moist air that's coming out of the cannabis and we're allowing it to move into the space to where it can be processed out. Dehumidification is tough on a lot of scenes the same way because it's they're, they're energy consumers. Uh, dehum sucks up a lot of power. And when you're really talking about a good dehum, you're talking, you know, 180 points a day. And so that's, you know, three or four grand for something like that on the average. And so for a lot of smaller growers, they don't have the ability to use some of these. But it's, it's, it's stuff that nowadays you can rent. So you can rent this equipment from rental places. You go to places that do smoke and damp fire damage. All these devices are used to do uh, in, interior damage type work. And so that's where you go rent this type of equipment from. And you can rent a quality dehum that will pull a building down. And you use it for a couple days and then you return it. You don't need to buy this equipment. This is all for different industries, but we have access to this equipment now. And that allows you then to get this material to a level. But the main point is that we can gauge it with gauges, but every variety of cannabis has its own sweet spots. It's not all the same. The denser the cannabis, the sloppier I can be with moisture. And why is that? Because it won't break apart into crumble. I may have a, it may get gummy, but it won't be vulnerable. But if I take anything that has a lighter construction, not as potty, more delicate, and I over-dry it, it'll literally turn into powder in the bag. And by the time the end user gets it, you, you're not going to get anything back. And so what you have to remember is there's no hard, fast rule for the cannabis. Cannabis is a, it's the largest family of plants in the world. And so what you have is you have a lot of range in what you do. The main point is not to drive the temperature so high, not to drive the humidity out so fast. And what's so fast? On something that was light and airy, maybe two to three days. On something that's a solid, chunky bud, five to seven. We can get it to dry in three to four, but really what we're doing is we're pushing it too hard, and that temperature must be that great. There's no way I could get this much water out of the product if I wasn't getting the temperature up high enough. And the problem is those two days of speed that I saved, I lost, I lost some quality in it without a doubt. And the problem with the, our industry is that we're always in a rush to get the product to the market, except the problem is when we get the product to the market, the market's already filled. So now we have to bring it home. And now you bring home a product that you rushed to get to market, and now everyone else didn't who, who didn't rush, now they bring their product to market, and that's what you compete with. And, and you have to always remember that. You can't shortcut some of these processes, and you just have to take your time with it. And the, the best thing that you can really do is really take a look at what is cleanliness in a space? What is food quality cleanliness? What does that entail? Did your dog walk through there wearing a flea collar? Because those contaminants came up in the cannabis. Like it was crazy, the stuff that was coming up, and the people that got caught were pretty, and the, we got caught because it was, you know, their products. But a lot of them were pretty honest. And one of the, one of the guys, one of the growers was like, he goes, man, we, he said, we keep pulling samples up every second or third run. We haven't applied Eagle 20 in five years. And so, you know, in a four and a half, five year process, it still remained present in the space. And so, so many of these spaces that we've lived in and worked in, if you didn't have it yourself the whole time, just you, then it could be contaminated. And the problem is that we don't know. And so that's what you really want to work with is you, you be gentle to your product, take the time to dry it correctly, which means that it has a resiliency. And when you smoke it, it's a, a little damp, a little damp, meaning that a little bit, tiny bit more dry and it would combust completely. That product is good for a bag. And you have to ascertain that plant by plant. 
You can't, it's not just they're all the same, they never are. They are if they're in similar morphological characteristics, frame type, bud type. But otherwise, it's variable. Remember that you don't want to lose those monoterps. People who dry the product too fast, they destroy the quality of the product. Many of these strains that um, are very, very marketable become very unmarketable quickly. And now you, now you basically have to turn it into oil. And so now you take a product that's missing all its monoterps and you turn it into oil and it's still bitter. It's just an oil. So once you've lost the terps, once they've gassed off, they don't come back. So that's an important point to remember. And on the, on the trim end of it, what you're looking for is hand process. If you're using machines because you're at, at such a level, then it has to be a product that's going into a very different market. It can't be people who are looking for connoisseur product because you, you just took it away from them. You probably took 15, 20% right off the plant. They're okay, but if you're taking this, I, mean, I even have some that I use for dry for the smalls. So I have some, like I have a, a, a green machine, and I use it for the small stuff. I use it for stuff that tr trimmers don't want to touch, for little pea-sized buds, things that otherwise would go to waste. They're perfect for that. But for stuff that you're going to actually present, as little damage to the surface as possible, because the more we wipe this trike off, the, where is the smell coming from? Now it's coming from trikes that are inside the tissue from the accumulation of these ovule glands over time. Well, I want it to be loud on the exterior. I don't want you to have to break it up. I want it to smell so strong you smell it through the bag, and so that's the way it leaves. And in a minute, we're going to need this differentiation because you're about to see an incredible amount of cannabis come into the market. And all of a sudden, what is, what is connoisseur cannabis? Because you grew it in your yard? That's nice. It, it, it's determined by the market. The market determines this, not us. And so for me, a lot of this is, is, is uh, play. Play meaning like I have the ability to test and mess around and see what happens if we mess with these products. If we have the ability to, to dry it this way or the ability to spin it, what happens if we spin it and we hold it? We know that four months later it's brown. And we know that if we, night, if we, if we take good, in fact, Alan's here, if you take probiotic cannabis, that stuff still holds color after a year. The, the streptomyces relationship with the plant absolutely changes the way it degrades over time. Your nutrient density, as we start to get our BRICS index up, as the sugar density increases in our plants, we have far less degradation. And so the factors of, of your end harvest start at the beginning of when you selected your cultivar. What cultivar you selected for the season you were going to work, what inputs you did, how well you maintain your schedule, how you harvested it, when did you harvest? When's the best time to harvest? In the morning. Why is, why is that? Because the plant has had the most amount of time to restore all its essential oils. So if I pick it early in the morning, I have flashed off as little oil as possible. Every terpene is present on that plant. In real life, we're chopping it at 3 in the afternoon. We're chopping it in the middle of the night. We're dragging it through the friggin' woods, running for our lives. Um, you're, you're stuffing them in trucks. You're dragging them into trees. But if one could do it correctly you would cut it in the morning. And, and that way what you're catching too is the plant, which has done all this sugar production all day, has sent sugar to the roots all night. All through the night, this plant has returned that sugar to the plant, to the plant tissue and has restored and created and built. So in the morning, every day, you have this brand new, beautiful plant of optimal health and vitality. That's when you pick it. Take that then and you have your optimal terp levels. And, and so these little details are when we do it. But if we can pick it in the morning and we're able to maintain it at a temperature that's reasonable, we do a hand selection in terms of how we, we do the cut itself. 
um, at the end of the season, if we have good cannabis like this and we store it properly and we put it into some kind of vac, when you vacuum it, same thing. Do not vacuum it till you crush it. You can't. It, you'll destroy the product. Once you destroy the product, what do we do? It oxidizes. When we crush the product, we break up these glands, we crush these trichome heads, we release this volatile oil. This volatile oil is exposed to air. It now turns black, and we brown the pounds. You're, when you have a brown pound, it's oxidization. And for us now, this is an issue because what happens if we have enough cannabis coming off? Say, say 2017 is a vintage year. What does vintage mean? No rain. So vintage only means no rain. So if you got a year of no rain on a grape, and they call it vintage, that means it was, no, it was, it was a gorgeous season. Well, what happens if, say, 2017 is such an exemplary season that the cannabis is in demand for a number of years? Well, that doesn't work for us because we work on such an annual basis. But with, with properly grown cannabis, properly processed cannabis, properly dried cannabis, and then the advent now of all the packaging and nit nitro pack, we should have the ability to really hold some of these incredible seasons for some time, and you'd be able to bid on that after a couple years. I mean, why not? They do it with wine. And so we know with Nitro Pack, and it's about five grand for a Nitro Packer, and what I was recommending to some friends was they, they, they chip in. So Hills were buying them. So you get seven people together and you use it. But what it does is it gives you a product that can hold a couple years. It's just like a pack of Fritos. You know, you, I don't eat them, but you open it up and it's it's still the same product. And that's the same thing with nitrogen packing. And that's, I think, what we're going to have to get into next because we're going to have seasons like this year where really this is a shitty season. Like there's some killer depth that's coming out right now, but if you were any fire-affected area, you had a problem. And that's all contaminated cannabis. You can't get that smell out of the cannabis. Fire is a contamination just like all the other contaminants we talk about. If you're using, just like I used to, I used to know people who use carpet fresh in their grow, in their house. Because I would smell their pounds and say, hey, you use carpet fresh in your house. And they're like, how would you know? I go, because it, it sucked it up through the bag. It picks up these contaminants. And then the product has no, no velocity. We're back to having a, 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 I call it pillow stuffing. You might as well sleep on it. And so for the years that are fire damaged, well, then it's not such an incredible year. But, for, but we might have another incredible year. It's probably been 11 years since we had an incredible year. I think it was 11 years ago where we had no rain until November 3rd. So that was the last year we had where you actually had really vintage cannabis, where it was premium. I mean, that was the last year purple outside was purple. After that, it was 50-50 because no, no other year could hold the climate. Our, our change in climate has radically affected how we function and operate. Well, there, your... If you, if you nitro pack it, you shouldn't get any of the oxidization, but you'll still have chemical change, and you should see, uh, oh, I want to say like a maturing of the flavor. Like I've smoked good nitro weed. You know what I smoked too that was kind of neat was I smoked freeze-dried. I got to mess around with freeze-dryers where people were doing freeze-dried, like freeze-dried coffee. Freeze-dried coffee is basically coffee that they boil, make it into coffee, and then they freeze-dry it and evap the water out, and you're left with this solidified concentration. Freeze-dried cannabis is they're taking cannabis and you're putting it into uh, deep storage refrigerators, almost like vernalization chambers. Vernalization chambers are used to do cold hardening for bulbs. And so when you vernalize a bulb, you put it through this winter-spring process, and they use these vernalization processes to um, set bulbs in motion. But they started using it for 
cannabis drying and we can dry cannabis at, you know, 20 below zero with the low humidity. And that's, that's freeze drying. And so freeze drying is pretty interesting. I got to smoke some freeze dried cannabis and it was just sharp as a razor. I mean, the flavor was sharp, but it had a little bit of chlorophyll. The chlorophyll didn't break down as much. And so it left a little, like a green knife in you, but it was pretty interesting. These are things that are coming. See, we're, we're working off of, off of a technology of what we've used, but the question is, what is the technology that's going to come into us in a minute? And what I'd like to see is I'd like to be able to see premium cannabis that actually was put through a true aging process where you actually put it into a chamber and you sequentially brought it down digitally to where over a two-month period you brought it down 18 points and now you should now we would we would see something a little bit different where you would you, if you didn't flash the heat off and you allowed all the terps to remain and the whole process was correct we should see a level of refinement and separation within the flavors that it would, would be unbelievable that's what i noticed from really well done cannabis when i'm judging the emerald cup there's people who took their time on every single aspect of it and all those things combined make it right it's not just one thing. It's never one thing. Just like in life, you're never one thing in yourself. You're many things. And it all matters. And, and the, the product that reflects that care is always a premium product, even if it's a regular variety. Yeah. I don't like using bread. Bread's a food, and bread has mold, and mold gets into my cannabis and contaminates my cannabis with the pathogen that I can't sell now. And so what I would prefer is not trying to put any of those things. I would, I would, if I was going to do that, I would go get one of those inert moisture packs. The, the best results I've had, I mean, it's funny, but it's, there's some ghetto stuff we've done that work really well. When we're drying in barns that are 90, and you're like, wow, this is so dry. We just fill bins with water and hang sheets out of them from the rafters and put a fan on it, and it creates a, a moisture distribution system for about 7 bucks, And you can re-moisten an entire barn. Um, the ability, the ability to, to control that process. How do we add moisture? How do we pull moisture? But typically, when I get pounds that are too dry, I just put them in a brown box inside. I take the turkey bag, and I just blouse the turkey bag so it's open, and I put it in a brown box so that it's sealed, and I just stick it out on my back deck. And, and in the morning, I take it in the house, and it's back to being soft and pliable, and, and then I let it sit for another hour in the house, and I go, perfect. Vac it. And now you know you can put it in. And, and that's really the truth of it, is just learning how to, how, to, how you, you can go pretty far. See, we've screwed so many crops up over the course of our lives as growers that we've figured out most of this stuff from trial and error. And, and that's where I realized that cannabis is such an incredible sponge that as long as the drying process was too dry from humidity, not too dry from heat, we can actually recover a lot of the quality of the product through allowing it to just re-moisten naturally and just let the cannabis sit and allow it to, to stabilize and then bring it from the outside back into a cool room so that we don't flash off this moisture we just put into it, let it sit, put it back outside. And as long as we contain the product so we're not getting any kind of contamination into it, you're good. It's just a, yeah. When I'm, when I'm trimming it, yeah, until, until it gets put into the bag, but I'm leaving those big fans on. I'm leaving as much as I can. I don't want to. I don't want to rip on anything of the plant. I would rather just chop it and not damage it and hang it. And that's what the trimmers do. I just cut it. I just cut it and hang it because I want to protect this product. Because what you're going to do is you're going to be beating it up the whole time you're hanging it. 
you don't put one piece here and one piece here. You are packing these rooms tight as a drum. There's never enough room in real life, you know what I mean? And so what I want is I want to try to keep as much of the trike present as possible. The more of the trike I can keep on the exterior of the surface of this product, the better I'm going to have with every aspect of the secondary sale. It's going to have a better smell. It's going to have a better visual. It's going to satisfy the requirement for commercial cannabis, which is the majority of the people today are looking at it, not smoking it. They're more concerned with the looks of the product than the smoke, and then they smoke it, and then they go, oh, it satisfies me. But it's that visual at first, and so everything that affects that to me is just don't do it. And so I just know that through all the years of doing this, everything that sped up the process reduced the quality. There was never a shortcut that made it better. It just made it a little better for us in terms of labor. And so if you're the trimmer, you know, and you're the one you know, fleecing it first, oh, yeah, you're paying everybody. But it's... But that's good business, and, and it's, everyone has a place in the industry. And so to me, trimmers are, are uh, highly skilled labor. It's not, it's not rough labor. It's not unskilled labor at all. I don't, I don't work with random trimmers because that's what you're going to get is a random product. What I want is I want highly skilled people who understand that this product is very special and that it has to have a specific visual look. And to me, the trimmers are really your quality control, and it's the trimmers that give me all the feedback on all the products. It's, it's the trimmers I talk to about what did they notice in the, in the process. Did they see differences and changes from scene to scene, strain to strain? Um, what did they notice? And that's where our rare feedback comes from because they're the ones who handle it most intimately. I'll always, I'll always trim some cannabis. I always trim something from the scene. I'll trim something of every variety just so I can touch it myself. But it's professionals that do this. I'm not a professional cleaner. I don't, I don't have the ability to move so delicately through this product without damaging it and just shearing it into something. And when you see that level, that's what we're really talking about. What is artisanal cannabis? Was it you know, trimmed with a hedge trimmer? No, no, it was done professionally. And so to me, those people, which seem as if they're basically you know, some Klingon of the trade, they're crucial. I mean, they're absolutely crucial to me. I'm really picky on trimmers. And if you get good ones, it then it allows you to present this product that you worked so hard for. You did all this work on your strain selection. You built your, your soil correctly. You followed all your cultivation protocol. You waited till you basically couldn't wait anymore to harvest. You took the time to slowly harvest it so you didn't crush it in truck bodies and crush it in the wheelbarrow and crush it on the floor. And you took the time to seal these rooms so there's no contaminants. You took the time to get all the material rented to dry this space. You took the time to keep it at a level under 82. And then you give it to a couple of monkeys and they turn it into trash and you're like, whoa. So, you know, everybody's crucial in order to make it really high-level artisanal cannabis. And that's where we have to be. We don't have a B-grade market. We're not, we're not, we're not big enough. Nobody is. This, they're not, this isn't an acre. I don't care if they give an acre. An acre. That's not a lot of cannabis. An acre isn't a big farm, last time I checked. Maybe for cannabis today in 2016, but it's not a big farm. And so none of us are at the level where we're million-pound producers. We're all, at, at best, even with the largest size garden, you might be at a couple thousand pounds, and that's not a lot of cannabis when you're providing the legal market when the mouth is the size of, you know, a Christ of a state. So for us, it has to be this. It has to be this artisanal level stuff. I mean, if you, if you ask me, they, they should start to design truck bodies 
that are completely sealed dry-in chambers that you then deliver to scenes. And this is computer-controlled on a logic system. And you just load this up and you logically set it up and then it dries it and then the, then the cannabis is then handed back to you and, and, and trimmed. Because And these type of devices could be shared among people. But we have to get it to the ability where you're really producing this product on a consistent basis so that the market gets to see it the same all the time. You want to differentiate yourself, but at the same time, you want the information to be shared to all your other fellow farmers and neighbors because we were all a community before. And for most of us, we, we kind of operated together in some loose form, a very loose-knit form, but we operated together. And to me, that, that's crucial, that, that sharing of the info, the working of the hills. What I notice is even at the Emerald Cup, we can pick out hills that use the same compost company. I can find, and, and we don't know that it's the same hill. It's just that it leaves traces in the cannabis, and I note that. And then I start to put notes saying, see if you can figure out which ones came from the same hill. And I start to group up cannabis that has the same flavonoid profiles coming from the media, not from the varietal. And then at the end of the event, we can ask the, the, the people who run the event, where's this stuff coming from? And we're pretty close. We can start identifying which compost companies are making the best compost. Which ones, which companies are, are influencing the product to be better? And, and it's this information that has to get shared, and it's this information that, that we need to be able to function. Um, continue your top dress, but other than that, there's nothing to really apply. You don't want to put anything foldy around the product right now unless you're trying to get something to do like a competitive exclusion. So say you're having some kind of fungal issues, and you can, you can, you can get some fungal and bacteria on the leaf to try to work and get some fungal and bacteria into the soil and kind of work. But right now, if we can keep the plant as dry as possible, then we'll get the greatest concentration of trikes. And so remember, trichomes, are, they have a genetic potential. So the plant has a genetic potential of what it can achieve. And if we give it the right environment, we'll achieve that potential. And we need to achieve it, otherwise we have dry cannabis. Non-oily, non-smelly, and the numbers are low. And the numbers are huge. Numbers are huge nowadays. And so how do we lose numbers? We lose the amount of trikes, the amount of cannabis compound-carrying little containers on the plant. And because I have less than you, my product is not as strong as yours, and your cells and mine doesn't, but they're pretty much similar. So that. I, I do not know, maybe, but those things, um, if, a lot of the hygiene products, though, are approved for use, so they wouldn't be marked as toxic. USDA we're talking about. I'm not saying these guys are Puritans. Like, just, I'm not saying that they're all the, the tell-all, be-all either. I'm just saying that you're being regulated by a group, and what they're saying is that on things that they consider toxins, here's a whole river of them that you never saw in cannabis. And it, and it was the time, but it, it blew my mind. It wasn't that it was present. I, I, I kind of assumed a lot of it would be present. It was the duration of time it remained in the scene from its first application to where it was still toxic on your product four years later. That that can penetrate it. Yes, that can penetrate into the cannabis. Yeah, and if I had someone that was wearing pungent smells or no air fret, none of that stuff. But you know, I don't I don't see too many trimmers covered in perfume. I mean, I honestly, patchouli maybe, but even then, the ones that I work with aren't. But the thing is, most of the trimmers that you deal with really are. I mean, to me, they're nowadays. It's a lot of men. But for me, it's, you know, 45 to 55-year-old women. They, they're masters of it. I don't think there's any human alive that's trimmed more weed than that lady. <laughs> for real. And, and they talked about, well, we know this with the fungicides. We know that with Eagle 20, that when you apply it, 
It's present on the, wherever it was sprayed, it's present for years later. You, that's where the problem with fungicides is there is no real breakdown of it to the degree, almost like you have a breakdown in all your insecticides, but the fungicides don't break down like that. They have a longevity that's incredible. And, and I know that from the lab. We know that, that the usage in spaces, but I never thought about it in the cleaning process. I never thought about it in the drying process. All these spaces that are used, you know, you're like, did you own the building when you bought it? Did you buy this scene from someone or did you build it? If you built it, what'd you do? Ready to go? What, we, oh, we got a couple minutes. So I'm random going. We got some questions. Anybody wants to ask something? What do you got? You know, I usually don't. I usually don't um, use any light in the space at all. I don't worry about it. Um, I've, I've done a ton of messing around with uh, light tests on LEDs and, and different uh, phytochromes, different, different wavelengths of color on the effect of growing plants, but never in the drying process. I never messed around with uh, the lighting end of it. What I what I just wanted to do was was keep the oils. The whole my whole thing is to try to keep the essential oil content high, and and it seems as if um, we can maintain that level. If we can keep the moisture and the heat to where it balances out, to where I'm never aggressively moving the oil distribution, I always succeed. It's when I screw that up, I'm done. But do, have you done anything with uh, black lights? Have you noticed the change? Well, you know, UV is killer for looking at. You use the UV light to find PM. You shine it up and it just shines. You just beam this stuff. But, um, you know, you can use you could use ozone. But the problem with any of these ozone emanators to kill any of the pathogens is ozone wipes smell out like you wouldn't believe. If you've ever used real, I, I used to use real ozone technology back in the day. And, and you, could, you could have a lady who was heavily perfumed walk through the room with this stuff. And when she left, she was stripped. There was nothing on her. Like, real ozone is unreal. It is, it is. But we used to have to use it before charcoal filtration. And then that's, that was a quick, before charcoal filtration, back, back, yeah, that's where, we had, we had a question the other day, where'd all the smelly cannabis go? Well, it, it left because everybody had to shift indoor. And once everybody shifted indoor, you had to have an ability now to hide the smell. Because when we're growing it in the hills, who are you trying to hide it from? Visually, but not smell. Well, when cannabis changed hands and it became from what it was to what it became, the, the need of the plant to deliver a product became most important. The quality of that became second. And that's where all the really loud turp plants went. They're gone. I mean, we, we dig into some stuff now, but boy, some of the stuff, yeah. Yeah. Wanted. Yeah. Real pine or roadkill. The hunt, because pinene, and, and, and it's all, they believe it's all pinene-based turp profiles. It's all pinene-based but it's, it's, you know, you got so many subtleties of combinations to create it. But I remember when Roadkill Skunk was, we all had it, we all grew it. And then little by little, you had to get it out of the system because nobody could handle the, the fear of growing it in a uh, persecutorial environment. And you had to have a real pair of balls to run indoor back then without smell killing. And not many people had it. And so there's only so many of us that actually held on to some of these killer genes. And then if you're in the game long enough, pretty soon you lose everything anyways at some point. And so, lo and behold, for all of us that held on to the genes, by the time we went through the system, we lost them too. And so now you can't find that. What is that genetic worth? What is the roadkill skunk worth? Because it's not that the potency was so devastating. It was the delivery of those terps was so unique, it literally befuddled you. What was the numbers on the strain? You know what I mean? I'd love to test it. 6% probably. I mean, literally, probably like 6% THC. The old skunks. So a lot of this stuff, these numbers are low. When you go back in time and look at a lot of these strains and numbers are low, I was just talking to Rob Clark at the uh, Hempfest. Rob Clark wrote Cannabis Botany. He is probably one of the smartest guys in cannabis in the world, literally. And he was 
talking about the experiments they were doing in Holland where they were running, you know, 100% THC and getting uh, subjective readings on people and then running it at a 50% with the, with the terpene infusion and it was perceived as twice as strong. And so our perception of power is very wrong a lot and I do a lot of lab work so I'm always amazed at how wrong I am. This doesn't have any power. Wow, it's got high numbers. This one has no numbers and it's off the chain. It's very hard to perceive. It's the terpenoidal delivery that gives us the effect. And some of these pines and road kills had an incredibly penetrating effect to the individual, but we have no idea what the numbers were. Now, you know, that's the truth. So this was devastating cannabis, but if we put it on the table today, you know, it would be interesting because now we can take those terps and put them with other varieties that have a more powerful body, and you'd start to see some incredible cannabis. So thank you very much. All right. That was Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery talking harvest and curing practices. This has been another edition of the Cannabis Hour. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll be back two weeks from today with another episode of the Cannabis Hour for you. And if you'd ever like to reach me with questions or comments about the show, email kzyxcannabishour at gmail.com. That's kzyxcannabishour at gmail.com. Thanks and have a beautiful day. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.